This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Charlie Jenkins. Charlie has worked as the creative director of a film and television industry and as an assistant to the writer's room of the Amazon original series Lost in Oz. He has led or worked on digital campaigns for the CW, NBC, Hulu, and Blizzard Entertainment properties. He joins me today to discuss his debut novel, American Wrestling 1989, a heartfelt and funny novel set behind the scenes of the pro wrestling industry's golden era, for which he drew on his experiences working for an independent promoter. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Charlie Jenkins. Hi, great to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I'm happy to have you here. And Charlie, I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? In a walk-in closet. My I parents grew up as they had me when they were very young. They were graduate students. We lived in this tiny apartment in Madison, Wisconsin, and they didn't have enough money for an apartment that came with an office. So they used a walk-in closet. And when I was about five or six years old, even though I couldn't, you know, spell yet, they had me dictate my first books out loud and they typed them into the computer. And they were often like I had a lot of action figures and I like to make up stories about like He-Man and Pee-wee Herman and the doctor from Doctor Who and Dracula. And so my stories, a lot of them were like crossover fanfic, basically, with a very surreal, bizarre sort of five-year-old's imagination. And we printed them out and punched three holes in them and put brass tacks through them and sent them off to grandparents and family, friends, and everyone as Christmas presents. And that was where it began for me. I mean, I can only imagine if my parents did the same thing for me and my twin brother, Jimmy, because we would have some pretty interesting stories featuring all the little Star Wars figures we had. We had, you know, figures from the Black Hole, Tron. Uh, we'd probably mix them all into some crazy universe. Classics. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I didn't need a lot of, a lot of rules for, you know, how it was possible for these characters to interact. I just, like, I just really believed it was possible. The you know, one thing about the action figures we had growing up, they sort of decreased in quality over the years. Like the original Kenner Star Wars figures were pretty sturdy. And then as time went by, they must have done some cost reduction. 
because they became, especially like G.I. Joe figures, they were like very flimsy. And my brother used to throw them up into the ceiling fan and just to see like their limbs explode. Like it wouldn't happen on the old school Star Wars figures, but on all of those G.I. Joe figures we had over the years, boom. I mean, Father Mulcahy's had one flying like across the kitchen, you know, <laughs> across our kitchen. Well, the original WF figures were one piece and they just had one, like they had, well, they were basically two pieces and they had one way that they could move and just one simple action as they got more developed and as they were made for adults, they had more and more movable parts. And I have to think that they became less of like a solid brick and more of like a fragile collection of joints. So that probably happened with them too. Yeah. Well, you mentioned or invoked WWF located in my hometown of Stamford, Connecticut. Your book is certainly about wrestling. So tell me, what what's your background with, with professional wrestling? So around 1990, beginning of 91, I discovered wrestling and just immediately fell in love with it. I was at a sleepover at a friend's house in Melrose, Massachusetts. I still remember everything about it. I woke up in the morning and he was a wrestling fan and he wanted to watch WF Superstars and the NWA. And I just remember seeing The Undertaker for the first time. And it was like the characters from Masters of the Universe or something had come to life and taken on this human embodiment. And they were all just these weird, like, not monsters exactly, but kind of these huge muscular heroes and villains. And I just was fascinated with just the bizarreness of it and just all the possible weird characters. And even though I have watched wrestling ever since then and still really enjoy it, I still have a fondness for the, the commitment to just whimsy of that period. I started going to shows Boston Garden with my dad. Every month, the WWF was mostly based out of the Northeast still at that time, even though it was expanding. And so they were there every single month, sometimes more than once a month. And we were just sit up in the balcony and watch Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, and Macho Man Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior and Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, all these great guys. And I'm so glad that I discovered it when I did because I got to see that generation of guys in person. And I, I kept following it over the years. And when I graduated from college, I, I met someone who knew a recruiter for the WWF and I really wanted to join their writing team. And so I interviewed and they interviewed me like four times. I got really deep into it. I wrote this writing sample that was read personally by Stephanie McMahon, who was head of creative at that time. And they liked me, but they wanted me to have more work experience, either in wrestling or just in general. And so I, I emailed like promoters all over the country and said, do you need a creative? And of course they told me what I kind of already knew, which is that the minor leagues of wrestling don't really use a lot of like writers. They it's mostly improvised and scripted with just one promoter who determines everything the broad outline of all the stories. But one of the promoters said, come on out here and you can be my assistant and you can contribute to the creative a lot. And so I moved out to to a one-stop-like town 
and started working in a wrestling promotion that was based out of an airline hangar. And yeah, I just got to uh, got to see for myself how the sausage is really made for better and for worse. What was it like, you know, going into the minor leagues, as you call it, and seeing, you know, because we see like the big production right on TV with the music, the sound, the, the you know, the high production value. What was it like seeing the other side of that? It was very interesting. I mean, the guys were... They all had other jobs. They were all juggling families and other commitments. And it was basically once or twice a week they got together on the weekends. And even though they might have been in some like really demeaning, like manual labor, minimum wage job all week, suddenly they would stand on the top turnbuckle and everybody in the crowd would cheer for them or boo for them or, you know, they got to look sexy or whatever. And they were completely transformed into this alter ego in a way that wouldn't be very possible in almost any other industry, maybe other parts of theater. But even then, like the crowd interaction is much more intense with wrestling. And so that, you know, it was kind of inspiring to see them, you know, discover this power that they wouldn't have otherwise had access to. And at the same time, I also saw a lot of hazing. I saw, you know, just a lot of bigoted attitudes, a lot of, you know, negative, just negative experiences that I'd read about in wrestling journals and wrestling tabloids that I'd read happen backstage, but I got to see for myself and experience some of it for myself. And ultimately I decided that I was just too much of a geek to really feel comfortable in that setting. I just like, I just wasn't, I just wasn't one of them and I was never going to be one of them. So I decided after a few months, plus they promised to pay me and they never did. It was just not everything that I dreamed it would be. So I decided it was better off being a fan. Got it. So you put that on hold and then you went to a career. Now, were you able to, it looks like, or it sounds like we're able to use your creative skills and your writing skills on more of the corporate side of things? Yeah. So I started out trying to work at a cable television network. I'd gotten a degree from the University of Arizona in transmedia studies, which was a major I designed myself. And basically the idea is that, that every medium, whether it's books or movies or comics or toys or music, it has properties to it that are unique to that medium. And a really good franchise isn't going to just repeat the same story over and over again, the way that you would have seen franchises do in, you know, in the eighties where they would just like write an adaptation novel and whatever it's, it should be a patchwork of like the best possible story that you can tell in a novel. And then, you know, next to like connected to the best possible story you could tell in a movie and a video game and so forth. So that was the focus I came in with. And when I tried to go to a cable network, they very understandably wanted me to just learn the business and just follow them and do what they said and do it their way. And that was totally reasonable, but I found their way to be really like remedial and boring. And I just, my heart wasn't into it. I ended up moving out to, to Hollywood and working for a company that was specifically focused on transmedia. I started out as a research assistant and among other things, 
I read all of the books L. Frank Baum ever wrote and did a, a, you know, a deep dive into Baum the person. And I was able to create a guide we called Ozipedia that informed the writing staff of a new Amazon Originals cartoon series called Lost in Oz. And I got to be in the writer's room and have conversations with them and inform that. And then I got to work. I, I moved up to be the creative director of a of another company, and we're also focused on what we call transmedia architecture. And we, among other things, I got to spend an entire year designing a franchise. Everything in this fantasy universe, from the cars and the weapons and the fashion and the architecture and the geography and the you know the clothing and just the plants and animals all of it and just really like plan out all of the different pieces of how a franchise like marvel would launch and they presented that to venture capitalists and got a 20 million dollar production budget just to start with which was amazing and it seemed to be headed towards really good things but like so many projects in hollywood it didn't end up ever getting made and something like three times as many projects in Hollywood get started as get finished. So I worked on a lot of projects, a lot of consulting gigs for different companies that were really cool and I really enjoyed the work we did and I got paid for it, but it didn't end up getting made. And that was actually why I decided to go into writing novels was because I was coming up on my 40th birthday in just a couple years. And when people would ask me, well, what have you worked on that I've heard of? There wasn't a lot that I could point to, even though I'd been getting paid to work for years. And I just really wanted like a thing that someone could buy that I could hold that, that I could say that I did. And is that sort of the genesis of American Wrestling 1989? Yeah. I'd originally written it as one of many screenplays that I wrote and basically put in a drawer. And then I decided at the point that I decided that I wanted to write a novel, I decided that was the best one for me to work on and uh, pulled it and adapted it into basically the first season of the way I envisioned a TV show unfolding. Got it. So tell us, what, or what can you tell us about, about the book? So it's about a, it's about a wrestler from the 1950s who suffers a tragic accident in the ring. He botches a pile driver and leaves someone paralyzed and eventually dead. And uh, he feels horrible about it for 33 years. And it basically causes him to throw away a lot of his life because he has such bad survivor skills. And one day his teenage daughter has to do a paper for school about what she wants to be when she grows up. And she starts questioning her dad about why he ended up in a job that he hates and finds out, you know, that he has this horrible history that, but that he's never stopped loving wrestling. And she has got a wrestling promotion that she writes about in her notebook where she makes up all these characters and draws them the way I used to when I was a kid. And he is, has this midlife crisis and is inspired to actually open the wrestling promotion from her notebook with her in order to teach her that your dreams are possible if you work hard for them. So he buys a YMCA and renovates it into kind of a boxing gym 
and opens a wrestling promotion and finds wrestlers who will portray her characters. Interesting. So, you, I mean, you're able to kind of keep that love of wrestling and that industry knowledge that you had kind of in part, you know, and marry that to your own, you know, your own interest experiences, kind of what you did as a kid and put that into a book. It must have been a very cathartic process for you. It was, I got to write about all of this stuff that I really love that I've got all of this nostalgia for. And I really say it's a love letter to wrestling of the period, which is not to say that it is completely seen through rose tinted glasses, because I also deal with all of the hazing and steroid abuse and prescription drug abuse that was going on at the time. But, but it was, you know, it was great to just put all of this knowledge that I'd collected throughout my life into this book. And it, I think it read to, it led to a novel where the, I hope the passion comes across on the page. Yeah. What, what was your, well, first of all, what was the timeline for writing it? When did you start it? And when did you, you know, complete your final draft? I started writing it. I would go to Bob's big boy and just sit there for like practically all night. Cause it was an all night restaurant. And, and I would just write it almost every day. And it took a year to, to complete a finished draft of it. And then I went to this, uh, this wonderful woman who was a former personal assistant of my dad's. And I asked her to be the editor for my book. And I thought she was going to come back in like a couple days and have a few things I could work on. And that was going to be it. And then I was going to publish it. But she came back with over 1000 notes and I was completely blown away, but I worked through all of them. And where we disagreed, I, I, we were able to have a conversation once I realized why she made the note, I was able to come about it in my own way and stay true to myself, but always, you know, always respond to the feedback. I turned that and I think, okay, woo, I'm done. And she sent me back over a thousand more notes and we went through seven drafts and it took a year. And then I spent a third year getting the cover exactly right, getting the audiobook narrator that I wanted, getting guiding that narrator to the performance of the audiobook that I wanted, just going through all of these different steps just to get it released. So in total, it took three years. Wow. So you went the sort of the independent publishing route versus the traditional publishing route where you're querying agents and doing that whole thing? I did. I you know, I'd heard that publishers make you do all of your own promotion, but collect most of the profits that you could have gotten. And because I was catering to like this really hardcore fan audience that I knew so well, I thought I could control the process myself and I can go directly to the fans. And I probably know the fandom around wrestling more than the publisher is going to. So I wanted to give that a try because at that point in my career, I just wanted to have control over the process and make sure that it got out into the world. Well, yeah, that's, you know, that's, you know, I completely agree. My first book was independently published and, you know, it's a very uh, sharp learning curve. <laughs> you know, you learn a lot because you don't know really what goes into putting a book together until you've done it. And then when you think you're done with it, you realize you've only just scratched the surface, you know, but I mean, what are some big lessons you would take into writing your second book from this first experience? 
So one, I mean, I learned more from this editor, from working with this editor for a year than I did in four years of undergraduate and over a decade in the field. Because when I was an undergraduate, the overwhelming the overwhelming thought is was that you can't really teach writing. You've got to just learn through doing. And then when I got into the field, obviously they weren't teaching me anything. I was expected to perform. So she actually taught me like much more, not about formulas exactly, but about what makes stories work on a deeper level than that, about what was wrong with my prose and I became just a much, much better writer for having all of this conversation about the craft. So that's something I can bring into my next book. But I also, I learned that even though the publishing company may take all of your profits, they also don't leave you susceptible to the losses that being an independent author does. And by the time that I paid this woman to work with me for a year and paid for the audiobook and the cover artist, I was out a whole lot more money than I'm ever going to see back from the book. So it ultimately, even though I worked very hard on it, and I wouldn't like to think of it as a vanity project in the sense of being lazy or self-indulgent, it is sort of did end up being a vanity project in the sense that it's not going to be profitable. Well, not maybe not directly profitable, but you can take those lessons and apply them to the second book. And the second book will A, take you less time. You'll be a better writer and you won't need a probably won't need as much editorial assistance, content-wise anyway. So there's that. But you could also, you know, use it as a calling card for other business ventures. You know, there's, you know, I've, what I found is, yeah, if you look at the, just like a profit and loss statement, you're always going to be running at a loss. You know, after you've paid for all the edits, after you've paid for the artwork, you know, and then, you know, I just hire a narrator. I know how expensive that is because I've done that too. And but it does help to get your name out there. You build a little credibility and you parlay it into other things, you know, use it as a calling card for something else. So there could be some direct, you know, business benefit to it over time. And I've got what I most wanted ultimately, which is something that I can show people and say, this is a real demonstration of my ability. This is actually the best thing I'm capable of producing at this moment in my life. And, you know, every part of it is reflects what I think is good. And I also, I made so many mistakes during the process. There were so many things that just ended up taking a lot of time or costing a lot of money that I would not make those mistakes the next time. So I could probably get out quicker and cheaper. Yeah. Right. And you know, who's to say you need to follow the same process for the next go around. You'll have known a lot more. You'll be a lot better and you might be able to go, go a different route, maybe hybrid or you know, get, you know, Amazon's got some imprints that'll pick people up. And especially like with wrestling, that's, you know, with the success of Glow on Netflix and with 80s nostalgia kind of always, not always, but increasingly becoming big. Yeah, they, you could have something there. You know, I could definitely see a series. And it sounds like, are you thinking about this as a series? I mean, it initially I conceived of it as a series. And even though I wrote it, as a novel, I still kept in mind what the structure of a season of a television series would be like. And I feel like it it plays out a lot like like a Netflix drama for that reason. Yeah. 
Well, I've got some wrestling questions for you because I always like to get to know my guests through pop culture and we're pretty zeroed in on wrestling here. So I'm going to ask you just a couple of opinion questions here. My first one is greatest wrestling match of all time. What do you think it is? Well, greatest or my favorite? Because like if you're looking greatest from like a business standpoint, then you might say Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant or The Rock versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. For me personally, my favorite, I really love Shawn Michaels versus Ric Flair at WrestleMania 24, which is a match I was there for. I traveled all the way across the country to see Ric Flair's last match. Didn't end up being his last match, but also Macho Man Randy Savage versus The Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 7. Those are two like matches that actually make people cry, that make people emotional that are full of like softer emotions and you rarely get to see that in wrestling and it's so nice when you do so you mentioned andre the giant versus hulk hogan that was wrestlemania 3 pontiac silverdome they broke all sorts of attendance records but there was a match earlier on that day that i would call the greatest of all time which was Ricky the Dragon steamboat versus macho man randy savage for the intercontinental championship of course ricky won only held it for a month before losing it to the old honky-tonk man. But to me, that was the greatest wrestling up until that point in my life that I had ever seen. There's a character in the novel who actually goes to see that, goes to see WrestleMania 3 on closed-circuit television at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, and I describe Ricky Steamboat and Macho Man Randy Savage dancing a ballet on the movie screen and just how amazing it was to see them in, like, giant size. I've seen a couple of AEW events recently at the movie theater, and it's a really cool experience. Okay. How about greatest personality of all time in your mind? Who's the greatest? Gosh, there there's so many. I would say, you know, Macho Man is definitely up there. I would say that CM Punk today is probably CM Punk or Roman Reigns are probably the most charismatic people today. MJF, incredible incredible charisma, incredible just range of storytelling ability and always gets the crowd incredibly involved. You know, Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair probably belong in that Mount Rushmore too over time. Yeah, I'm going to go with Ric Flair. If I just had to pick one, I do like your idea of a Mount Rushmore, but I, you know, I'm going to go with Flair because he entertains me to this day. There is a, a an Instagram account called oh, something about Ric Flair. It's just no context flair. And it yeah. is just one of the greatest. I mean, it just makes me laugh every day because he was such a and I guess is still such a such a character. He's become a real character in like not always the best way, but back in the 70s and 80s, he was a character in the best way. And he was just like he lived the gimmick. He took his limousines from arena to arena and, you know, just like made people believe that he was the wheeling, dealing, show stealing son of a gun. He was a riot. Opposite side of the spectrum, who did you find to be most annoying or someone who you just didn't care for? Uh, I mean, growing up, I really had an antipathy towards Hulk Hogan that I gave to a character in this novel who absolutely passionately hates Hulk Hogan. And at the time, we had no idea about, you know, any of the controversies that have come out since then. But just his character on the screen was such a bully. He, you know, would 
throw his temper tantrum. If he didn't win, he'd throw the referee around. He'd put his hands on female managers and throw them to the ground. And and what was so frustrating about it was that he was this this bully character who would cheat and everything. But but the commentators talked about him like he was this wonderful hero and would refuse to acknowledge any of his faults whatsoever. And as a kid, that just felt so unfair to me that they wouldn't acknowledge that he wasn't that much different than the villains. So and we have to be of different ages because the Hulk Hogan I remember growing up in the early to mid 80s through the Andre the Giant stuff was like the real American. I mean, that was his song, Real American. And he was like your train, say you take say your prayers and take your vitamins kind of guy. And I know like after the Hollywood Hulk Hogan stuff happened, he, he was a bit different, but you are not describing the Hulk Hogan I knew and loved. I'm describing the Hulk Hogan of the late 80s and early 90s. And that's before he became Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Yeah. It's still the all-American with the red and yellow. But but I, in my opinion, he was a reflection of Vince McMahon's ego and his frustrations and what he valued. And Vince is a very complicated, pretty troubled person and was even more so almost at that point in his life. And he got to live out fantasies vicariously through Hulk Hogan. They weren't always really nice fantasies. Yeah. Yeah, just ask Bubba the Love Sponge, but that's a story for another time. Anyone you're surprised isn't dead yet? And I'm surprised isn't dead yet. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, no, it's a real surprise, you know, who is dead. And it's kind of a crapshoot because some people who took cocaine and steroids and painkillers and all this stuff are still with us and others who did seemingly the same thing died decades ago and it's hard to figure out quite why but you know it's sad the ones who left us and are it's good that the ones who are still with us are when i w- recently went to wrestlecon and signed copies of my book for the first time the biltmore hotel in in los angeles luke from the bushwhackers actually got carried out from the event and passed away shortly thereafter. And that was certainly shocking. That leads me, it's a good segue to my next question. Favorite or most memorable tag team of all time? I love the Hart Foundation. I, they're just probably not more athletic or more charismatic than any number of teams today. I mean, the Young Bucks are ridiculously athletic today you know, just incredibly well-conditioned athletes, but there's something about them at the time that they were fast and raceful and they contrasted with the like hard-hitting sort of slow lumbering teams like Power and Glory or the Powers of Pain or Demolition, you know, so, so well. And it, it they just looked so good doing it. I, uh, you know, you mentioned mine, which is Demolition. I loved and Smash, and I loved their song, yeah. it, you know, from the Piledriver album. You know, I was a big metalhead during that period of time in my life. And that was like, you know, thrash metal almost. You know, it was very heavy. It was very heavy. Do you have a, a favorite wrestling song? That's a really good one. Breaking the Dragon Steamboat also had a really good one from that time period, um, his original theme. Yeah, I... You know, 
cult of personality, which isn't a wrestling original song. It's an 80s song that got appropriated, but his CM Punk song is always like really exciting. I think AEW is doing great music for the most part. WWE's tra- trailed off a little bit on, on the music front in my mind since the 80s. Yeah, I loved I loved that Pile Driver album. The lead song, Pile Driver by Coco Beware, is hey, that guy was a very talented singer. And I was surprised at how good of a singer Mean Gene Okerlund was with his duet, not duet, he did Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo with Rich, Rick Derringer. And he was, he was good. He, had, he could carry a tune. And they had him sing the national anthem at, it was either WrestleMania 1 or 2. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't think it about him. And it's not like he was actually like a good singer, but like he could carry a tune in a bucket. Yeah, he was good. Last one up on this, which would be favorite ringside announcer combination. Who's your favorite combo plate of ringside announcers? Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby the Brain Heenan. 100%. I'm sure it was great too. But yeah, those three, but particularly Gorilla and Bobby, 100%. Yeah, well, they had great chemistry together. And, uh, you know, Bobby, because Bobby was also, he was a manager, which I still don't know what purpose manager served other than to be characters. But yeah, he was a great, just he used to make me laugh. Just his observations and his one-offs. He was very talented. He was a troll. And that's a word that I didn't know at that time. You know, it was a word that became more common with the internet, I think. But but he would just say things that he knew were absolutely outrageous just to get Gorilla all wound up. And it was hysterical and Gorilla fell for it every time. And, you know, it was just, he had such a mischievous sense of humor. It was really fun to watch. Yeah, totally agree. Well, Charlie, where can people purchase American Wrestling 1989? It's available on all formats on Amazon and it is available in audiobook on Audible. Very good. And if people want to get in touch with you, Charlie, do you have a website? Do you have any social media handles you want to share with everybody? charlie-jenkins.com and i believe i'm charlie g jenkins on the twitter on the twitter very good well charlie thank you so much for stopping by uncorking a story and letting me uncork yours thank you it was such a pleasure to meet thanks for listening to uncorking a story if you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about mike go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.